my anti-Blazers rant. Lost to the sands of time. Who has an anti-Blazers rant either? That's just amazing. (laughs) You know who I hate? Those extremely likable Portland Trailblazers. there welcome to hot takedown the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down today is june 8th 2021 and i'm sarah ziegler the sports editor at 538 joining me in new york city is senior sports writer neil payne hi neil hey sarah how's it going good how are you yeah i'm joining you from new york city and it's hot it is very hot here it's really, yeah, it's unpleasant right now. Uh, have my air conditioner off uh, for the podcast, and I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Yeah. Uh, and from Los Angeles is five thirty eight contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Neil. Uh, it's lovely here. It's like room temperature. <laughs> In your room? <laughs> that does no, make outside, sense. No, outside, 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 inside, and outside's the same. It's room temperature inside and outside. That sounds sounds nice, yeah. Um, you guys, it was another ridiculous weekend in sports. We had a player in a golf tournament have to withdraw with a six shot lead in going into the final day because he tested positive for COVID nineteen. I like, didn't think that was still a thing I that know. people is could this, do. Is this last March? What is happening? <laughs> I love how they were like Rom won't say whether he's been vaccinated or not. It's like, yeah, I think we can put two and two together here and do a little uh, high-level uh, guessing. Well, Did not he say something along the lines of he was looking into it now, or he's gonna, or, or I, I heard also like he might have like knew he came close uh, in close contact with someone with COVID and then took the first shot at the beginning of the tournament in Ohio. Yeah, I heard that too. Like, like. I think I have COVID. Let me quickly take a vaccine and maybe it'll go away. That's not really how that works, John. It's it's also, isn't it against the vaccine rules? Like when I got my first yeah. shot, they're like, have they you? They ask about that. Do you have COVID? And you have to be like, no. I thought you were still allowed to take it if you had COVID. It just worked differently. I guess I responded no, so I'm not sure what would have happened if I if I went John Rom in that situation. Not ha- yeah, not having COVID, I wouldn't know. No, so. right? It was interesting too, because like there was a there was definitely like a part of like conservative Twitter that was like the PGA. This is unfair. They should let them go out there and play alone. On I was like, no, they yeah. shouldn't. Like, first of all, if he was not leading by six strokes, they wouldn't do that. And, and they're not gonna like reorganize the tournament because this guy because of this guy. I mean, who who seems to have known he like could have had COVID when he started the tournament, putting God knows who else at risk. Yeah, he and he knew he knew beforehand what the consequences yeah. would be. So maybe he didn't read the fine print around the uh, PGA Tour COVID memo or whatever. Hey, uh, it doesn't matter how much of a lead you have. You will get disqualified. <laughs> he was hoping for like a Justin Turner situation, which is like they would have told him after he putted <laughs> yeah, on the right. 18th uh, on Sunday. Oh, by the way. <laughs> oh, by the way, you're positive. Put a mask on. Or not. Uh, or not. We're celebrating. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely a Justin Turner situation there. Um, I wanted to talk about one other thing that happened this weekend, and that is ongoing this week, which is the Softball College World Series, which has brought some drama. If you're not watching, you should be. It is so much fun. On Monday, Oklahoma beat the very plucky James Madison to come all the way back from a game one loss in the double elimination tournament to that same James Madison team. The Sooners will face Florida State, which also lost its first game. So the championship series starts tonight, runs through Thursday if game three is needed. Um, Should be a really fun tournament. Uh, Oklahoma, Florida State. What is this? The 2000 BCS championship? Exactly. If you like (laughs) 90s matchups, this is for you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the College World Series is so much fun. On today's show, we'll talk about the Falcons trading Julio Jones to the Titans and what it means for both franchises. Then we'll check in on the NBA playoffs and why each of the second round teams has a case for hope and for despair. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. On Sunday, the Falcons announced a deal to send wide receiver Julio Jones to the Tennessee Titans in exchange for a second-round pick in the 2022 NFL Draft and a fourth-round pick in 2023. Jones is one of just 25 wide receivers with at least 12,000 career receiving yards, and he now joins star receiver A.J. Brown and running back Derrick Henry on the Titans. And also, you know... Ryan Tannehill at quarterback. That was a sticking point for Keyshawn Johnson, who weighed in on the trade on ESPN's KJZ show. Tannehill's not all of a sudden throwing the ball 50 times a game. No. You're spending money on receivers as if you're throwing the ball 50 times a game. Does it make sense for the organization, in my opinion? We are delighted to be joined today by our 538 colleague, NFL analyst, Josh Hermsmeyer. Hi, Josh. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you wrote a great piece last week in anticipation of a trade about Julio and where he is at this stage in his career. Do you agree with Keyshawn Johnson that this move doesn't really make sense for the Titans? You know, honestly, I'm not entirely sure what Keyshawn's talking about. I mean, (laughs) but but like, but first of all, like what team doesn't get better with Julio catching passes? I mean, he's probably the best wide receiver in the NFL and and like despite a, an injury marred season last year he probably I think has quite a bit left in the tank um, he's got most of his speed still and that really helps open up the intermediate routes for him because the D then has to worry about him going over the top and 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 in in that uh, Tennessee offense that's actually a pretty great fit if they continue to go play action heavy um, because that middle intermediate part of the field is usually pretty open for them with the uh, with the way they run their offense and the threat of Derrick Henry taking it to the house anytime he touches the touches the ball. But but also, and here's a part that I also disagree with Keyshawn on, is that the Titans lost like 150 targets last year uh, in the form of Johnny Smith, who signed with New England, and Corey Davis, who signed with the Jets. So there's definitely some room in that offense for a player like Julio, and, and they needed another downfield threat in Tennessee pretty badly and and if you need a downfield threat right you can't do much better than Julio and and I don't know and I guess finally he's talking about him being overpaid and I just don't see it a second round pick but I just think that's a perfectly reasonable price for a guy like Julio a future hall of famer I think it feels like kind of a cheap price to be honest I mean I don't know if you would categorize it that way but they didn't give up that much for one of the more 
dominant players we've seen in the last 10 years. <laughs> Especially with, you know, as you said, that hole that Corey Davis, uh, God have mercy <laughs> on him, who's on the Jets now, um, and Jonu Smith. I mean, and they didn't really address it in the draft. So, I mean, it was a huge need that was going unfilled until this move. They did obviously lose their coach to Atlanta, which is sort of a strange backwards trade that happened. We'll see how they they do, uh, you know, with the new regime. Yeah, and I know a lot of uh, Falcon fans, you know, from the other end were hoping that they could get like a first round pick out of it. But I know that a lot of that came down to also having to eat some of Julio's contract going forward. So it seemed like they got the best deal that they could have gotten out of it. But it was kind of a fair price um, uh, that, that Tennessee paid. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the Falcons put out there that they had been offered a first round pick. But when I poked around and I asked some people I knew, no one, no one believed that. Like the the only people who were like insiders who were reporting that there was a first round offered were were the Falcons. Like, I mean, no one, no one actually uh, uh, believed that that was an asking price that made any sense. And and then the other part of it was it appeared there were rumors and these usually originate from um, people's uh, agents but that Julio was going to want a new contract. And, and, you know, and I don't mind him trying to get paid. He's he's obviously earned whatever money he's able to get. But that does make trading for him a, a little more complicated. To, to think about what this does for the Titans, how it changes them as a team. I saw a very funny tweet from, from friend of 538, Eric Eager, who wrote that the Titans reminded him a lot of the 2020 Vikings in that these they have these great, very highly skilled skill players and then like, not really enough of a foundation under that. Do you agree with that, Josh? Do you think that's that we might be uh, seeing a, a Vikings-esque season in store for the Titans? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, you and you and Eric, you hate your Vikings with with a lot of love. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm probably not as high on Tennessee as maybe some others. I saw someone describing them on the on the Ringer uh, this week as a super team. I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm on board with that. I feel like that's not understanding of how super teams work. <laughs> like, can you even have a super team in football? I don't know. Uh, yeah. And, and, and if, if, if such a thing did exist, I don't know that, that, that I would be attaching that moniker to, to Tennessee. But I guess Vegas has them as a nine and a half win team. That, so that's the same tier as the Cowboys, Seahawks and Browns. Super teams. All super teams. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are good teams, but those are far from elite. And I don't know. Look, Arthur Smith. He's the reason, a big reason why I think Tannehill had a resurgence because he smashed a bunch of easy buttons for him. Um, he used a lot of motion. He, he leaned really heavily on play action. I don't think you need to have a Derrick Henry for play action to be effective. So I think he can kind of uh, export that to the Falcons and be good. Uh, but I worry about what's going to happen in Tennessee if they're going to continue with with the things that made uh, uh, Ryan Tannehill as good as he was these past couple years. So for all those reasons, as well as the fact that their offensive and defensive lines aren't that great, uh, I'm not sold on Tennessee. Although it does seem like maybe this is the move that you do in this window of being competitive for them because they have added Julio, which uh, you talked about, a great move for the offense. And then it seems like they spent the rest of the offseason just focusing on the defense, which is right because the defense was sort of the thing that was holding them back last year. They're 24th in uh, points allowed per game, and they spent a lot in free agency on the defense. They spent their first-round draft pick on the defense, and so you do that, and then you also go out and get Julio as another weapon on offense. Maybe that brings them more to being an all-around threat of a team. But then again, like you said, Vegas – knows all this and they're still not uh, elevating them into that top tier of teams yet. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, but look, they've been successful um, in the postseason. I, I feel like it, the offense won't be the problem if we see the Titans struggling this year. I think it'll be the defense. I think it'll be particularly the pass defense, which has looked bad at times. And now they're going to have a lot of young players sort of pushed into starting roles. I think scoring points is not going to be their downfall, and especially with Julio Jones. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, they, they have maybe... Uh, exceeded expectations in the playoffs the past couple years as like as an underdog now theoretically well they're going into the season anyway as as you know more of a favorite we'll see if they can live up to expectations in this case let's talk real quick about Atlanta and how they're going to approach offense without their you know long time star in the mix will this be an all Kyle Pitts all the time offense for them going forward yeah I I, I think they still have a pretty good wide receiver in Ridley and 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 Matt Matt Fair. Matt Ryan. I mean, look, if as I mentioned, uh, Arthur Smith was able to create a, a a a pretty good. I don't want to call Tannehill elite, but he performed statistically in an elite way um, for a, a number of the last couple of years. And I think he probably looks at Matt Ryan and he probably thinks, hey, if I could do it with Tannehill, I could do it with Matt Ryan, who's been to a Super Bowl, <laughs> but. But I don't know, and the other part of it is that, you know, having a good tight end, a good move tight end with the kind of offense he likes to run, as I mentioned, with play action, that's probably a good fit too. So I think, you know, there's reason to believe they're going to be better than last year. But is that is that really saying all that much? I think Vegas has them as like an eight-win team or a seven-win team. Um, this is now a 17-game season, so that's not even all 500. Right. So I don't know. I don't know where we're at with Atlanta. I, I think that's about right, though. They they. They could get lucky. I'm more pessimistic on Matt, Matt Ryan just based on like what I saw. I don't watch a lot of Falcons games, but I remember that week. I think it was week 14 against the Chargers where he threw a bunch of... He just looked... He did not look like the same quarterback. And I think Tom Brady has kind of lulled us all into thinking that there is no aging in the quarterback position but well, I, I was worry. gonna say he's 35 <laughs> he's got a good yeah, 10 years no, off, I, right? I, no, I, 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 I wonder so i guess my question josh is i wonder whether if they could do it all again and know that julio was gone whether they would have kind of taken a quarterback in that draft position whether it's trey lance or, or whomever i i mean i i think it was a huge mistake i mean i don't i don't even think we need to know if either of those quarterbacks will be good to be able to say that it was a process mistake not to take a quarterback with the fourth overall pick. I think, you know, just the value differential between a quarterback and everyone else is just so large that um, I don't quite understand it. And and from the very beginning, the GM in, in Atlanta, is it Fontenot or Fontenot? I, I, I don't know the exact pronunciation. I apologize. But he had been telegraphing from the very beginning of his tenure that he was going to get rid of Julio. So it was just always in the cards, it seemed. Um, he, he restructured Matt, or Matt Ryan's contract when you get that first year as a GM where you can kind of blow things up if you want to, and, and you can do it with kind of impunity. The owner doesn't get mad. The fan base and media don't get mad. And he took a pass on all that. He re- basically said, I'm, no, I'm going to put my stamp of approval on basically what we had before and, and kind of move this thing forward for another year and try and compete. I passed on Justin Fields, passed on, uh, I guess, Mac Jones. That's a, 
I would be less excited about that pick. <laughs> Trey Lance, but, yeah. <laughs> Trey, Trey Lance was was gone because he went to San Francisco. But if he was there, that oh, that's been, right, that's right, yeah, yeah, it would have been a good pick. I agree. And although he's such a projection, and you know, he's just like all like raw talent, kind of like a Josh Allen Redux. But anyway, I'm I'm kind of rambling. But I think I think to the point you were making about about uh, Atlanta, I think that. They, it was kind of all always in the cards that Julio was leaving, and I think that's wild. Yeah, it really is surprising. I mean, you know, for 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 what he has done and what he even in seasons where he was you know injured and missed games, what he did while he was in those games, as you showed in your piece, Josh, is just such high level production, and and to not want to keep a a, a player like that around and keep him happy is just confusing to me I I don't understand it really and it seems like the Falcons are now kind of caught in the middle like they didn't want to commit to rebuilding around a new quarterback like you said they didn't draft someone they took Pitts which is a move that sort of is seen as extending Matt Ryan's window of uh, being a viable starter yet also at the same time losing Julio takes away from the offense which itself hadn't been in the top 10 in scoring since 2018 their defense hasn't been good in God knows how long and they've done pretty much nothing to try to improve that so it's a little bit of like uh, you didn't commit to either strategy you just sort of stayed in the middle somewhere and uh, you're going to end up it it just doesn't see how I don't see how this ends well for them I mean anything can happen as as Atlanta knows, I mean, they were ahead by 28 to 3 in a Super Bowl and ended up losing. So. We know. <laughs> no Falcons conversation can ever go by without the, the mention of that. I thought we'd go, yeah, a whole conversation without that. Nope, but. nope absolutely not. All right. Well, you know, we'll we'll get a chance pretty soon to see how this all shakes out. The NFL season is is just getting closer and closer. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Josh. This was very fun. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, Let's take a break now, and then we'll come back to talk about the NBA. We are now into the second round of the NBA playoffs, the first round without LeBron James in a little while. But there's plenty of excitement to go around, from the LA Clippers perhaps overcoming their curse to the Atlanta Hawks upsetting the Philadelphia 76ers in the city of brotherly love. On ESPN's first take, Stephen A. Smith had an announcement to make about that upset win and what the stakes are for Game 2 of the Atlanta Philly series. And I'm here to announce this on national television. 76ers don't win Game 2. This series is over. They're not beating Atlanta four out of five games. Not the way they shoot. Not the way they shoot. And Ben Simmons, I said this many times, he had all seven of his shots. His athleticism, his attack in the basket, his defense, Ben Simmons is special, man, but he is no threat from the perimeter. And because he's no threat from the perimeter, they get to key on some of the Sixers shooters the way the Sixers wish they could key on Atlanta shooters. That's a problem, and they're going to have to figure out how to fix it. I believe they can. But they better start game two. We wanted to go through each of the second round series and explore why each of these teams can be optimistic about their chances at this point and why, on the other hand, they could be doomed. (laughs) So, Neil, as a former Hawks employee, do you agree with Stephen A. that Atlanta can wrap this thing up tonight? No. Uh, I mean, obviously... (laughs) (laughs) Two straight uh, road wins for the Hawks would be good. Uh, But at the same time, I don't know. It it was an interesting game one. Uh, The Hawks 
dominated the vast majority of the game, and yet somehow Philly only lost by four because of the... Uh, it, it didn't even feel like a furious rally. It just felt like they just kept chipping away and chipping away and chipping away, and then all of a sudden you looked up and you're like, whoa, this game is like shockingly competitive, and I don't understand why or how. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like Atlanta also threw their best offensive punch at Philly, and I'm looking for adjustments basically uh, in the next game uh, of what they do around Trey Young and essentially try to replicate what seemed to work in the fourth quarter of that game because it did seem like they were able to kind of hassle him and force a lot of turnovers and generate you know, some offense off of that uh, in a way that maybe they can try to get going. Uh, and they also just need defensive stops in general because I felt like Atlanta was just making everything that they threw up there uh, for most of the game. Yeah, for Philly, is that sort of the, hey, Atlanta is not going to shoot that well going forward, so as long as we stop turning the ball over, we'll be able to come back and it'll be fine. Is that kind of the idea do you think for for philly yeah maybe and and that they'll shoot better also so i think that it was um a combination of those things i think it really does come down to the defense because philly's defense we talked about why they made their turnaround you know when we broke down the regular season uh earlier that it was a lot of it was about the defense they had the second best defense in the league during the regular season and yet Weird as it is to say, the Knicks did a much better job against the Hawks on defense, at least in that series in the first round, than the Sixers did against the Hawks in game one. And I don't know that I necessarily would have expected that given how Philly, you know, defended all season long. The other the other point in Atlanta's favor here is that they did this without DeAndre Hunter, who missed missed game one. When pre-game when it was announced that Hunter would miss and Embiid would play, I was like, oh, that seems, seems not like, good. <laughs> yeah, and, and so much of it was like anticipating the opposite of that. Yeah. I was like, how is Embiid, like without Embiid, what, what, are, what are the Sixers going to do? And then when you knew that Embiid was playing, it was like, oh, they got this. Like yeah. coming out at home, game one. And just the the um, absolute haymakers that Atlanta was landing early on in that game w- was like shocking to me. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's turn to another series where a team got out very quickly in its most recent game: the Bucks and the Nets. They got out quickly, and then they got in quickly, and they just played quickly, yeah. quickly scoring. <laughs> yeah, last night's game was uh, was brutal for everyone but the Nets and their fans. <laughs> if you, everyone except for half the people involved. No, see, I would argue that, like, obviously, if you're a Bucks fan, you're you know unhappy. But if you're just an NBA fan who was really looking forward to this being a good series, this is also bad. Like a 39 point game that was over in the first quarter. That's yes. not brutal. fun. Yes, brutal. and I would say it was good for the Nets fans. But as we've litigated in the past, there are the, none. Nets, the Nets yeah. have no they, fans, so yeah, that exist. doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What can the Bucks do to get back in this series, or is this over for the Bucks? I think uh, for starters, they can make shots. Oh, interesting. That would be, that would be the first thing I would well, work I think, on. I think also they could get stops. That would oh, be nice. Stops, stops huh. would be good. I think making shots is a big step forward if they can get that down. But they're not, honestly, I, I think they're not. It's funny because, you know, we spent all of this, like, oxygen talking about the big three of the Nets. 
Which hasn't really existed. Like, they're, they're really, no one has, like, a, a lot of memories of the big three playing together on the Nets. Because uh, how many? They how played many eight, eight games, I think, total eight, yeah, together. Like, and yeah. they didn't even I, play basically the first two games of this series. They also right. didn't play the, together. The first, yeah. uh, what was it, like 30 45 seconds? 45 seconds, yeah. Yeah, this series. <laughs> it was a memorable minute. Yeah. But the but the interesting thing I think that we kind of overlooked, or at least I've overlooked, is that Brooklyn's depth is sort of impressive. I think their bench and their role players are just doing a lot more than the Bucks. Uh, the Bucks guys are doing, and 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 even some of the you know Chris Middleton has not played well, has not shot well, and I think there needs to be improvement, you know, sort of up and down the line. Even Giannis, I think, can play better, but I think the the bench and the role players are need to step up. Like that first game, Jeff Teague took a lot of heat for just having nothing bo- on both sides. And then he, you know, I barely played in the second game. Which is the right move. Like why is Jeff Teague getting lots of minutes in, in this playoff series? Yeah. It's, but it's, you it's know, a question it, I have. <laughs> it, it was sort of funny. Like, is this really Dante DiVincenzo being out? Is the reason the Bucks are losing? Well, but they did it, have a good I, Raptor. He had a good Raptor. It kind of might be. I mean, as strange as that is. Well, it doesn't help, but also, like, I don't know. uh, You flip that around and you look at the Nets, and, like, all of a sudden, Blake Griffin looks like he is the Blake Griffin of old again, and you're just like, I don't know. It's very frustrating to watch this happen just for a lot of reasons. I, I don't know. I don't like the Nets. I don't like how they were built, and I don't like how they got these guys, and I don't like that these guys that they got are suddenly playing a lot better for them than they did for the Pistons. I don't know. I, I was I was making a long-winded, elaborate compliment to Steve Nash, which is uh, <laughs> I, I do think he does deserve some credit for, for how he's used some of these guys, like particularly Griffin, which – We've seen this not work. You know, we've seen this work sometimes. The sort of fallen superstar becomes role player. That's not always an easy sell on said fallen superstar. So credit to him for, like, getting the most out of Blake Griffin, especially in this important moment. But, you know, up and down the lineup, I think, you know, whether it's Claxton or Bruce Brown or Bruce these Brown, guys. Yeah. 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 I think he, I think he is using even without his three stars, he's, he's using what he has in the most efficient capacity, at least so far. I do have one like question for Blake Griffin, which is why, how did you, why did moving to Brooklyn help you learn how to jump again? So <laughs> in, in 20 games this season with the Pistons, he had zero dunks. Like this was sort of a thing people thought, you know, can he not dunk anymore? Like what happened? 26 regular season games with the Nets, he had 18 dunks. Now in seven playoff games, he's already had seven dunks. Like how? How? How did you that learn how to dunk again? Isn't that bizarre? Especially for a guy like known for dunking. Yeah. Yes. And I don't know if that's a I don't care anymore thing in Detroit or if there was actually something physical going on. I think that happens. Look, you you get to Michigan, it gets cold. <laughs> And you are actually speaking from experience, but the, 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 like you go to that stadium, it's quiet, no one cares. Stadium. The team's <laughs> arena, whatever you call it. <laughs> when palace. are you? Are we learning that when you went to uh, to college in Michigan, you you didn't you couldn't jump anymore? Is that a thing? That no, happened I to just you? I went to a couple <laughs> piston games. You know, not like Ben Wallace exciting piston games, uh, bad piston games, and I. It, you know, you sit in that chair 
and you basically have a beer and you fall asleep. But Blake Griffin was playing. He shouldn't have fallen asleep or been drinking beer. No, I'm just saying know. it's not the most expensive. <laughs> I'm not making an excuse for his no dunks in Detroit. It's just saying it's not the most inspiring environment sure, to be around. Sure, sure. And we've seen Blake Griffin. I mean, he's not the most durable player in the world. So maybe like going up for a dunk, he's sort of like, uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not going to risk getting hurt on this dunk for Detroit. I'll do it. I'll, I'll posterize Giannis, though, in a playoff yeah. series, which does sound more fun. Yeah, it does sound more fun. And Giannis, I love how Giannis was like he, he kind of almost thought about going up for a block. And he was like, I don't want any part of this. Nope. Nope. We're losing by too much. <laughs> Also, like, uh, maybe it's easy to lose sight of this based on just, you know, all of the other factors in the series. But Kevin Durant looks very much like old Kevin Durant. Not old, like, aged, but like Kevin Durant of a few years ago. And really, like, if you think about it, Kevin Durant... It hasn't lost a a playoff series when he was like actually healthy and contributing to it in like God knows how many years. Yeah, like we'll throw out the finals against the Raptors because he really was you know not uh, he he was probably the reason why Golden his absence was the reason why Golden State lost. Yeah, and then of course you know they've never until this year had a chance to go with him in Brooklyn. But I mean like. This guy, when he is healthy and locked in, and he seems really locked in, he's still like kind of unbeatable. I mean, I was struck by the fact that even when they put Giannis on KD, KD could score on him. I don't think anybody can can guard him. Yeah. I know you hate the super team, Neil, but I do have a lot of fun watching Kyrie and KD play together. And and Harden, if that were a thing, but yeah, it feels they, like I we can only get cutting, two. <laughs> they kept cutting to him on the yeah. on the bench just sitting there. And it was like, usually they'll do that, like cut to the injured player when like that team is is like struggling without them. It, it felt like a weird choice to kept cutting to him when they were up by like 40. <laughs> I liked it. It was like, oh yes, net super fan James Harden on the sidelines. Yeah. <laughs> It's like Spike Lee and James Harden. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, let's move to the West um, quick to talk about the series going on there. So let the after the, the very bad uh, Bucks-Nuts game, there was a very exciting Suns-Nuggets game. The Suns beat the Nuggets in pretty convincing fashion, pulling away in the second half after a very competitive first half. Neil, what does Phoenix have going for it other other than a game one win? Well, I love the way that their offense played, and and we kind of knew that they were a, a force to be reckoned with, uh, but they're one of those teams that I feel like people just need to keep seeing more and more evidence of them, or maybe just seeing them at all, yeah. to, to kind of convince themselves that they're actually good. But I think they're actually good. And some of it, like Denver, came out flat, I think, in some ways uh, in in that second half. Got some questions about them. Uh, Obviously, they are feeling the effect of uh, injuries and, you know, not the same team that necessarily piled up that uh, impressive regular season. But at the same time, yeah, I think Phoenix is a lot better than maybe people gave them credit for. And we're finally coming around on it. And it's not just Chris Paul. I think maybe it's easy to look at it and be like, oh, well, Chris Paul is uh, the, the guy that's kind of the glue holding together the team and that's probably true to a lot of extent but 
they have a lot of really good players. Like Michael Bridges had an amazing game uh, in that when Devin Booker just seems like he can, you know, roll out of bed and, and score, you know, 20 to 30 points. DeAndre Ayton, uh, Jay Crowder has been sort of a revelation, like remembering that he is actually a really useful player on a winning team when he's in that situation. So I like that whole kind of ensemble that they have around Chris Paul. Uh, and I love to see that Chris Paul is actually having postseason success because it's been sort of a, a theme for him, a narrative for him. But it's also like a much better supporting cast than I think anybody was giving them credit for. I saw a stat last night that DeAndre Ayton and Nikola Jokic matched up in their minutes per- like perfectly, exactly. And the Suns were plus 13 in those minutes. Aiton had 20 points and 10 rebounds. Jokic had, you know, had had his 22 points, but but Aiton really his defense on Jokic I thought was kind of surprising. I mean, Jokic is a great player and and will obviously get his baskets, but man, the Suns played a pretty complete game. Yeah, I was I was very impressed. I I hadn't I'll admit I was probably one of those ones who was undervaluing them thinking that the Lakers would take care of them and and LeBron would do his thing, you know, even even when they got, uh, the Lakers fell down in the series, I still thought that was going to happen. I, I think most of us did. Yeah, but yeah. DeAndre Aiden, you know, uh, he looked great uh, on the defensive side, especially on, like, the interior. Like, I think it's, it's you know, Jokic is so hard to defend, you know, because of his range and what he can do inside. But I think, like, he he looked like he was kind of, like, struggling to find good looks on the inside. And, and I think if you... This Denver team without its backcourt, let's not forget that, they're both out, feels kind of limited. And with Jokic, like, look, if if you knew that you were going to hold him to 44% shooting and only three assists in that game, it, you probably, you would take that. I mean, that's like pretty, uh, that does speak to the defense that they played on him. And he's been kind of inconsistent in these playoffs so far. Um, he's had some amazing games, but also like every so often, you know, you saw it with Portland also in one of those games, he'll kind of come out and lay an egg. Uh, and so I think there are going to be questions about whether he can sustain his usual level of greatness over like a whole series against one of these better opponents. Uh, and, and that's going to dog him you know until he proves otherwise I think I think you're right I also think he needs a partner he needs a guard partner partnering with him to really to shoulder some of that all right so let's let's talk about the last uh the last series the Clippers who beat the Mavericks by the skin of their teeth I did not think that that was gonna happen I know um in and in a dominating game seven for the that first round series they start their series against the Jazz tonight which I am very interested in seeing Jeff, what's the best case here for L.A. as it gets ready to face the Jazz? I think, look, we've seen Kawhi Leonard do this before and win titles. And it's very possible that we are getting the supernova, unstoppable playoff Kawhi Leonard that can take a team as far as as far as far he wants. Um, I do think they need... You know, we're talking a lot about supporting cast. I think their supporting cast needs to play better. I mean, like, it wasn't just Kawhi on that Raptors team, even though it certainly, like, the my memory of it is mostly that. But, you know, Siakam and, and Lowry and a bunch, those guys were all solid pieces around him. But, I mean, that game we saw in, in Game 6 where he just kind of went ballistic with 45 points is scary. And I think, like, 
the way at the level he's playing right now, I mean, the Jazz obviously will be tough. Um, they've been the best team for good reason all year, and they're I think I think there was a lot of problems with that Dallas team. I actually think LA should have beat that Dallas team in quicker fashion, just on paper, because I think you know it's really Luca out there doing it alone. I mean, who else does he have? It's like Tim Hardaway. So I think this is a way you know with with Gobert and and Mitchell and, and everything the Jazz have. I, I think obviously it's a bigger challenge, but. I don't believe in curses. Is is what I'm saying, Sarah. I'm not I a mean, Clippers fan, but I don't. I'm not. I'm not. There's. I don't believe in the ghosts of past Clippers teams and seasons and disappointments. I think they have a a, a leader and, and a star player who's a, probably the most proven playoff commodity right now outside of LeBron James or remaining in the playoffs. So. I would not count them out. I, and I'm not making any more predictions. I'll put it that way. <laughs> you don't believe in curses except for the Maple Leafs and all the other teams we well, went through Well, the Maple Leafs are right. obviously cursed. I mean, <laughs> right. that's not even up for yeah, debate. Yeah. All right. So what about the Jazz? What do, what do you see from them this series, Neil? Well, I think uh, I'd like to see more from them defensively, and some of that comes down to Gobert compared with the first round. But that could also be said about the Clippers. I mean, I think that those are sort of the the questions in the series is which team can show more defensive potential uh, compared with the first round because the Clippers really did get run around a lot by Dallas. And yeah, it was Luka like, doing a lot. Uh, and uh, Utah presents a very different look than that uh, but in some ways a more kind of multifaceted look and and maybe more dangerous I don't know how that's going to kind of compare whereas with Utah Memphis yeah they handled business but it was really more about them being able to score uh, but Memphis got pretty good production offensively in that series so I think uh, seeing how they respond against the Clippers offense which like we've seen flashes of certainly they have the potential to be better than they have been uh, some of their guys especially their veterans didn't show up necessarily all that great in the first round I'm thinking about like Marcus Morris I'm thinking about Rajon Rondo you know some of these guys so yeah I think it's it just comes down to the two defenses because these are two really good offenses and Utah they they certainly have the potential to do a lot of different things that um, make life difficult for the Clippers that that Dallas couldn't uh, mm-hmm. do yeah. uh, and so yeah I'm thinking about just the Rudy Gobert effect Yeah, we have a great story that our colleague Jared Dubin wrote um, that's on the site today about the Utah pick and roll defense against the way the Clippers run the pick and roll. And I, I think that will be a really interesting matchup. Whether Utah can adapt the way it likes to play, the soft kind of coverage it likes to play against Kawhi and Paul George, who can kind of eat that up you know Rudy is a paint protector and the Clippers don't don't really need to go into the paint because they feed on these mid-range shots um, and have amazing three-point shooting they have some of the best three-point shooting in the league it's a really interesting clash of styles and I I mean I hope it's a good series that's like all I want right now is a good series from some of these teams man with the Bucks Nets letting me down maybe maybe the Jazz and and Clippers can give us that really great series do you need Morris in in Rondo when you have Luke Kennard what a good question (laughs) a question I never thought that anyone would ask and and Terrence Mann and I'm not talking about Broadway legend 
<laughs> Tony Award-winning theater actor T- Terrence Mann. I'm talking about Terrence Mann with one R, role mm. player in Game Seven on the Clippers. Yeah, hey, he uh, he brought it for the, for LA. All right, well, the second round continues apace. We can leave this discussion here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. For this week's rabbit hole, I wanted to talk about something very cool that happened in women's golf over the weekend. On Sunday at the Olympic Club in San Francisco, Yuka Sasso took the third hole of a playoff with Nasa Hadaoka to win the U.S. Women's Open. Sasso became the first Filipino player woman or man, to win a major. And she tied NB Park to the day as the youngest U.S. Open winner at 19 years, 11 months, and 17 days. Sasso and Park are tied as the sixth youngest women's major winners. The youngest ever was Lydia Ko, who won the Evian Championship in 2015 at 18 years, four months, and 20 days. Sasso wasn't the only young woman making waves at the U.S. Open. 17-year-old Mega Gane was the co-leader after the first day, becoming the first amateur since Jane Park in 2006 to hold a share of the lead. The high school student from Holmdel, New Jersey, who is committed to Stanford University, but not until 2022, (laughs) she finished tied for 14th and was the low amateur of the event. This weekend's tourney wasn't even Gane's first U.S. Open. She played the 2019 Open at age 15. She is one of a long line of women's golfers to start very young. Lexi Thompson, who finished third this Sunday at age 26, played in her first U.S. Open in 2007 at the ripe old age of 12. (laughs) She was bested in 2014 by Lucy Lee, who still holds the record for youngest U.S. Open qualifier at 11 years old. Lee, who is now 18, played this year and finished tied for 16th. The youngest qualifier at this year's event was 14-year-old amateur Chloe Kovaleski, and though she missed the cut, she put on a show in the first round. She led the field in driving distance after round one at 301.3 yards, and this 14-year-old is said to average 280 or 290 yards off the tee regularly. I have one big question about that. How? How is this 14-year-old hitting the ball that far? I don't, I, I, I can't comprehend that. What is going on there? Is she like a big Bryson DeChambeau fan and, you know, is like uh, learning from that? I mean, 290 for a woman is insane. So Anne Van Dam is the current LPGA leader in driving distance, and she hits it only 291 so she's she's one yard ahead of this 14 year old uh and uh she herself is a good eight yards ahead on average of anyone else on the tour right now so uh yeah when when this 14 year old gets her tour card or whatever she'll like immediately be vying for the longest hitter on tour from like day one i imagine she's got to work on the short game if she's not making the cut and driving at such an advantage, um, but that's okay. I mean, I think I think he, I think feel like the short game is is teachable, and it does seem like it's like the last thing to come around. But she man. has a lot of time. Yeah, she's fourteen. Know, she's so fourteen, it's ridiculous. But I mean, she didn't she didn't look fourteen. She's big. 
and her swing is ferocious. I mean, she swings the ball so hard. I mean, like I was, I was kind of curious when I I posted on Slack about the stat, and then I saw her swing, and I was like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. Look at look at how she's attacking the ball. But it is impressive. Yeah. So you you brought this up too, Jeff. That like two ninety would be respectable on the men's tour too. I mean, yeah. that's about what like what Patrick Reed averages on the men's yeah. tour. It's that's no joke. And, and there's a lot of people it's ahead of. You know, it wouldn't be leading the men's tour, but it, it, it would be in the middle of the field somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you can't... Uh, look, there's there's people who are in long drive contests who drive farther and they never sniff any professional. Like, it only will get you so far. We've all seen Happy Gilmore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait, didn't it get him far, though? No, but he learned to putt, Neil. Remember? <laughs> <that> was, <laughs> Don't you remember the second act? (laughs) (laughs) I feel now like we, our assignment is to all go watch uh, Happy Gilmore. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that like the, so she, I mean, she qualified for the US Open, so she doesn't just hit it far. She had to win, you know, other things to be able to even get into the US Open. She's also 14. Let's not lose sight of that. She's also 14. Maybe that's less impressive when we have 17 year olds at the top of the leaderboard. But it's still 14, and I think there's a huge there's a huge difference between you know when you're younger, every year exponentially means more. So 14 and 17 is a big difference. You know, a lot th- those three years are big in terms of physical and athletic development and all that. So we've also seen sort of phenoms emerge and, and never do much. So you know, I, I hope she has the right people around her because that ultimately will sort of determine I think her fate. Well, yeah, and uh, especially on the women's tour, there have been seven consecutive first-time major winners, uh, which is the longest, uh, tied the longest streak of first-time winners of any period in the last 25 years. So I do think that there is a phenomenon on that side, uh, especially of players having like their best weekend of their life and then sort of falling off and someone else kind of takes the place or whatever. And I don't know if that has to do with like the younger ages also. Um, that might be a factor there too what do you guys make of that like the young the the very young players who will make a splash in these tournaments i mean it's it's we you don't see that many other places i mean there are other sports where the competitors are all very young you know gymnastics but for a 14 year old or a 17 year old or a you know a, a, an 11 year old when lucy lee uh debuted like that is wild to me that that that's even a possibility that these young girls could like be like, yep, I'm just going to hit the ball really far here and, you know, mess around at the U.S. Open. Like, is that I don't really understand where that comes from exactly. I think golf in general is benefiting, you know, from a lot of, you know, technological advancements in that are helping players develop quicker and, and get fitted with equipment that fits their swing and their game. So I think the learning curve um, is flattening a little bit in terms of like, you know, we're seeing this to a lesser extent, I think, of the men's game, you know, where we're seeing guys like, you know, Morikawa and Hovland and these guys kind of emerge at ages that maybe 10, 15 years ago, or certainly pre-Tiger, we didn't, you know, we never really saw, but obviously this is an even more extreme example. But, you know, I think it probably comes down to just like coaching and getting the right analysis and all this stuff. It's just expediating um, natural talents to be the best player 
they can be quicker than it has in the past and in a sport that has sort of you know rested on experience and you know like being in situations and short game and all these things that kind of like will favor an older player they're 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 narrowing the gap by power and what they can do off the tee and what they can do in their ball striking and all that and there might be just you know more involvement i think like we're seeing this in other women's sports also where as it becomes more not just acceptable, but encouraged for women to kind of figure out like where they can excel in sports. Uh, and the purse size on the LPGA tour is the largest it's ever been. It kind of that, that record gets broken uh, often uh, with each successive year. It, it might just be like, there are more young women in that generation playing golf and, and learning the game and playing it at a really high level than there were in previous generations. And, and maybe we're due for like, a golden era as as these players get older they'll be competing with the next generation and it'll create you know like a incredible age of women's golf yeah absolutely well i think uh i'm gonna go watch some videos of of chloe's swing and see if i can get my uh see if i can uh, match late, it with Sarah. my own it's not too late it is too late <laughs> it is too late <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for this rabbit hole and for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Josh, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.